Hello and welcome back to the Urban Kingdom Podcast. In this episode, Alex Rodriguez from Queens, New York, begins to tell the story of his faith journey. He shares about his experience growing up with undocumented immigrant parents and goes into the things that caused him to have disbelief in God. The second part of his story will be aired next week. That's right, next week. One week from the airing of this episode, and you'll want to make sure that you tune in to both. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get into the episode. Okay, Alex, thanks for joining us today. I'm going to briefly introduce you to the audience so they have a little idea who you are. Then we're going to go from there. For those listening at home, Alex is a software engineer from Queens, New York. I came to hear about Alex through a mutual friend. Just got to know him a little bit here. We started the podcast. So most of what you're hearing today here on the podcast is new to me as well. Alex is a jack of all trades and... Really, the reason we brought him on here is the same reason we bring anybody else on the podcast. We want to hear his story. We want to hear how he came to know Jesus and really anything that he wishes to share today. And so, as usual, we've asked all our guests these questions. Um, and I'm just going to say them here, Alex, for the benefit of the audience. The two questions that I gave Alex ahead of time what was it like growing up in your home, um, family and ethnic culture? You know, any stories from your growing up years? And then, what and who made the most significant impact on you and how? Alex, I'll turn it over to you and go ahead and start wherever you wish. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what was it like growing up in my home, um, especially considering ethnic roots? That's a great question. And I think it wouldn't be fair to answer that focusing only on my ethnic roots because Mm -hmm. I grew up in Elmhurst, Queens, which is per capita, the most culturally diverse population in the world. Mm -hmm. And so that had a huge impact on shaping me for who I am uh, from as early as I can remember. But uh, I'm a first generation immigrant to Mexican immigrant parents, undocumented. Uh, They, I, f- I forget when they got out of school, but I think they have a middle school education, maybe some high school. Um, but my my dad came here. He was back and forth since he was 16. Um, and my mom came here, I think, at 20. They had us fairly young by my standards, um, but by Mennonite standards, it's just, just perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They had, they had my, my older brother, which is the first son. Um, my mom was 25, I think. And I was born two years later at 27. So in fact, that's a little bit older than, than some Mennonites I know. Um, so yes, yeah, so they had us um, here in, in New York. Um, and I, I, I gave that start because it's pretty pretty foundational to my experience. Um, they still don't know much English. They know they can communicate in English. They've been working in service jobs my whole life. So they know just enough to get by. Um, but I sometimes struggle to have conversations with them um, because my Spanish actually has gone away. Mm. Um, so that it's important to know that from the get-go, there's a communication barrier between my parents and I. And I think that's the case for a lot of first-gen 
um, not just first gen, but first gen to undocumented, little to no education parents. Um, because my experience as a first gen child is vastly different than, let's say, uh, someone who came here who had a middle class standing back home, any country, and then had children here in America. I say that because it doesn't just affect the communication between child and parent. It affects the outlook on life. It affects the expectations that are had um, and the style of parenting. And I'm definitely generalizing here, but so I have a lot of friends that are not Mexican American who are Chinese American. Let's say Elmhurst is a fairly Asian neighborhood. Um, so I grew up with a lot of Chinese friends and I always wondered why, why is it that people who come from my culture, they end up pregnant at 15. They end up in and out of jail. They end up unsuccessful. They end up all these stereotypes. I've, I've seen them. My friends um, fulfill them. Uh, but then you look at the very same people who grew up in the very same neighborhood, but who were Asian um, and they grew up to be successful. They grew up to be uh, software engineers, which I'm not, I'm not uh, stroking my ego, but I am the only software engineer in my group of Latino friends um, in my group of just in my immediate family, because I'm, I'm the only one who works in corporate. Actually, I think my older brother is a teacher and I have friends who work in corporate, but I'm the only one who family of cousins and brothers and so forth who works in, in a, in, in corporate America. But for uh, Asian, my Asian friends, that tends to be the norm. They all work at Facebook. They all work at Uber and Google and whatnot, but we come from the same place. So I always wondered what, what is the differentiator? And and the answer is that they are, although they are first gen, uh, their parents tend to be middle-class and educated back home for where the, wherever they come from, which is interesting because their parents, when they come here, they tend to take on uh, service jobs right alongside people like my parents. So, so their parents are delivery workers. Like they're, they're often on, on those electric bikes uh, doing delivery or whatever odd job. So, so like on the surface, it seems as though we're one and the same, but in reality, those people actually had education back home. They were police officers and teachers back home. And the reason that they're here in America and, and not the poorer of their people is because they, they could afford the ticket here. So mm -hmm. whereas my parents are here because they were uh, really poor down in Mexico, they had fairly easy access. They could just walk up immigrants from across the world, across the ocean. If you're as, if you were as poor as my parents were, but in Asia, it would be really hard to get you into America just because you couldn't afford mm -hmm. uh, the ticket. And so it tends to be lower middle-class, middle-class people who, who immigrate from, from those places to here. And, and I've asked my friends and they told me that um, because of this, their parents have the knowledge and understanding that what it takes to make it here in America is education, is not just education, but educated in specific fields, medicine, engineering, and so forth. Whereas my parents, they don't understand what I do, 
and they they don't look at me as successful. Uh, they would look at my older brother as successful because he's a teacher in a public school, but uh, they don't uh, they don't know that I make multiple times what my brother makes. Um, right. And yeah, they just don't see my career as um, successful or respectable or or something to strive for because back home, the people they would look up to were school teachers and everyone else was a farmer or something along those lines. So already growing up, I had this, I'll just say that's that, that, that was my foundation for growing up. And I want to, again, make the point that I, I'm not stroking my ego, but I, I am honestly, I'm the exception um, to this kind of family in this place. Today's episode is brought to you by Urban Workers Retreat. Urban Workers Retreat is a retreat designed to help young people. Urban Workers Retreat is a retreat designed to refresh, equip, and awaken people who work in urban settings. This year's keynote speaker is Daniel Pollard and June Pollard. They will be sharing stories of discipleship, and there will be many other good workshop speakers to help bring good context of how to work effectively in urban settings. Find out more at urbanworkersretreat.com. Registration closes in one week from today. Urbanworkersretreat.com. Yeah, so so that's that's what uh, growing up in my community was like. Um, well, I didn't even give you details, but that's just the uh, general overview of who I am uh, in contrast to who others are in my community. My community itself outside of myself would be, it's an immigrant neighborhood. It's a bit, it can be a bit run down. It's not the hood, but it's definitely hood adjacent. Um, so growing up, I, I definitely had friends who were, who were tough. I was not tough, but because I was funny, I got to, uh, be in those circles. Yeah. Um, I was the same way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I got them to do my bidding for me. It was, uh, man, I regret a lot of things I did. Um, but anyhow. Oh, and I also wanted to mention because it's an immigrant neighborhood and because it's adjacent to um, tougher neighborhoods, a lot of the way that my identity was shaped is highly dependent on what school I went to. If I went to so elementary, I went to a uh, school that was half Asian and then mostly Latino. The other half was mostly Latino with a sprinkling of, of black students from the nearby projects. And so when I went to middle school, I had two options. I could go to a middle school that was in my neighborhood, which was um, mainly Latino, or I could go to a different middle school, which is the one that I went to, which was closer to Brooklyn. It was actually on the border of Brooklyn. Um, and it was mostly Puerto Rican, Dominican, and a sprinkling of Mexican, Ecuadorian, um, and black. So it was mostly Puerto Rican and, and Dominican. Um, and the reason that I'm, I'm telling you this is because I would have been a totally different person if I went to the mostly Latino school. And by mostly Latino, I meant um, Ecuadorian, Mexican, as opposed to the mostly Dominican, uh, Puerto Rican. So I don't know if you know anything about Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, but they they hate Mexicans. Um, yeah. They hate Mexicans and they, they grew up in Brooklyn or around Brooklyn, which was 
definitely uh, more hood than where I grew up. And so I went to middle school there, um, which is kind of my formative experience. And so in that environment, it's either it might sound like I'm being dramatic and I definitely am, but it's, it's definitely uh survive or die adapt or die. That's what I was looking for. Hmm. It's adapt or die. And I haven't told you about my personal experience growing up. So I'll tell you, uh, and, and all of, all of what I've mentioned so far, uh, comes into play um, with my conversion, which is why I'm taking such a long time to explain this. So I haven't gotten into how I grew up. So let's, let's put a pause on, on the middle school for just a moment. Um, so growing up in my household, I would say uh, I grew up poor. No, I wasn't the poorest of the poor kids that I knew but I was definitely in the poor, poor group. Uh, I grew up constantly making excuses as to why I couldn't go to McDonald's or hang out with people after school. I was like, no, I'm not hungry. Nah, bro. I just, I had Chinese yesterday. I spent my allowance. I didn't have no allowance. I was just lying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, a, I, I grew up making excuses all the time. Cause I, yeah, just grew up poor. I grew up in apartments where we shared the apartment with a bunch of other people. So we were all in one room and we were either renting out the other rooms to friends or family, whatever it may be. One apartment for, at one point it was one, one, one bathroom for probably 13 people. I think that was the most. I have no idea how we did it now because now we have the apartment to ourselves and I can't stand it when I'm <laughs> in a long shower and my mom is just banging on the door. <laughs> yeah. So I have no idea how we managed 13. But anyhow, that's how I grew up. Um, growing up at home, my dad was always working. He was a decent guy, definitely has his shortcomings, but he was just always working. So he wasn't ever around. My mom, she comes from, I met my grandfather once when I went to Mexico and I was like 12, but I never really knew him. But from the stories that I hear, he is a huge misogynist. Like he was, his mind was uh, old school, like old school, old school. Like he would get home. And then his his wife, my grandmother, would bring his slippers to him and just put them on the ground and uh, take his shoes off for him and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. he'd sit down at the table and he'd be served first. No one could eat until he ate, that kind of stuff. And and uh, he was really strict. My uncles, one of my uncles, at least the, one, the eldest one, he didn't turn out so great. He's got a lot of issues um, in his life. And I think it's because he took the brunt of the... Of the um, I guess trauma. Um, he took it on head first, so he's got a lot of things to deal with. Um, and anyhow, so that that was her experience growing up, and that definitely transferred onto my experience. And yeah, I don't want to get into specifics because you know, one day I hope my mom comes to the faith. I so understand. I, I, don't wanna, I understand. Yeah, exactly. What but you um, she was. Uh, it's not like she was all bad. She was. She definitely tried to be a good mother. She tried to. She tried to be loving, but it was, it was so, it was so confusing because she could oscillate between being fun and, and, and a friend to just being someone that you're afraid of. So it was very confusing. And in that environment, I would say it was hard to build confidence. And because I said that my father was just always working, there really was no, no one I could turn to for any issues at all. And then, so now, now we enter the middle school scene that I, that I just mentioned 
Um, it's a bunch of tough Puerto Rican and Dominican kids who hate Mexicans. And here I am, this uh, this weak kid who lacks confidence. It was definitely adapt or die. The first year or so, I adapted by being funny. And because I, I was weak, you know, I, I didn't know how to fight. Um, the way I learned how to survive was just by taking the punches. I never fought back in, in that in the first year or so, because I would just take the punches. Um, and I would just, I guess I, I had, I had to grow thick skin. I was forced to, and I, and I, and I, I guess I was used to it. I had already grown thick skin. That's not true. I was always a sensitive kid, but what I mean by thick skin is physically, I, I physically, <laughs> uh, adapted to, to pain, but eventually, so at home, like I said, there's no one to turn to. And then at school now, all of a sudden, um, I am dealing with, I don't want to use the word bullying because that's, that, that has a, that has such a different connotation for, for a different, different group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually, so now that I think about it, middle school, the people in middle school who, who were like, who, who were like what I described, they were actually a lot like my mom in that they would oscillate between um, being friendly and being someone you can hang out with versus being someone who would physically hurt you if you weren't like if they sized you up and they saw that you were you weren't tough they would um they would physically hurt you um yeah so it was it was that's the way it was and so after about two years i didn't i didn't start going through through puberty till i was in the eighth grade and so in the eighth grade is when all of the pent-up anger came out beforehand i was listening to eminem listening to all these uh evacine and so like i would I would deal with the pain and the anger through through sadness, I guess. It came out as grief. But then in the eighth grade, when I when I went through puberty, it came out as anger. And I was such an I was an angry kid, dude. I was a very angry kid. I dealt with that anger was was uh violently, but only to those that I knew I could beat up on. Yeah. Um so for a while I was a bully. And and that has been one of my greatest regrets uh, is is the things that I've said and done to hurt people because I have hurt people really, really uh, deeply. Um, so anyhow, that's what it was like growing up. And I guess we could talk about high school. Oh, I forgot to mention in 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 the eighth grade is probably when I became an atheist. Um, yeah, I think it was it was definitely the eighth grade. I forget if I was eleven or twelve. Um. But I was angry. I was bitter towards life. I had no one to turn to. Um, and so, but I, I, had a, I had a computer and I could turn to the internet. And that was around the time where this, uh, one of the first YouTubers were coming out. His name was The Amazing Atheist. I knew that's who you were Super cringy dude. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, as, as an angry kid, bitter towards the world who just didn't see God in my own life or just in, in the world, you know, cause it wasn't like, it wasn't like I, I, I experienced the pain and, and said to myself, this is just me. I saw it happen everywhere. That was just the default state of being everyone around me was in pain uh, as kids. And, and now that I think back, actually, I didn't have it so bad comparatively. 
I didn't have it as bad as, as some of my friends or some of my family. As I mentioned, I wasn't the poorest of the poor kids. So it's not, I never had to worry about food or anything. But another <clears throat> thing is I, my parents weren't drinkers and uh, I'm incredibly grateful for that because I would have been turned out a lot worse. I had friends or not even friends, just people in the neighborhood whose parents were drinkers. They were either always partying or the father was a a violent alcoholic. So I didn't have it as bad uh, as, as it could have gotten. So my, my point is at that time, my own life wasn't so great, but then I would look around and other people's lives weren't so great. That didn't stop me from self-pity, but still, I, I, I recognized that life is suffering. That was probably my my awakening moment as a as a eighth grader. Everyone around me is suffering. Life is suffering, mm-hmm. and the only people who are happy are those who um, are rich, who have money. And so, anyhow, I'm bitter, angry. Life sucks because I don't have money. Um, and then I, I see this one guy on YouTube saying that Christians are stupid and X, Y, Z and, and religion is stupid. And, and this was around, it's still eighth grade and, and stuff like, oh, evolution, uh, or no people denying evolution, uh, people saying that, you know, the world is only 6,000 years old. How stupid could they be? You know, how could you deny the evidence X, Y, Z? So anyhow, I, I became an atheist at at that age. And then I was a cringy atheist for another few years. Um, Before we move on, mm -hmm. when you say you became an atheist, what were you before then? Was was God sort of just an Mm -hmm. idea? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. for us growing up, before I really Mm -hmm. took God seriously, all God really was was someone you apologized to when you cussed. You Mm -hmm. said, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, because we'd cuss. You know, we were afraid of God. We knew that God was real. It wasn't until it was actually for me, it was starting at eight years old, not eighth grade, that I started to hate God. Wow. Um, and I actually was never an atheist. I believed he existed, but I hated him. <laughs> it was a very bizarre, bizarre childhood, to say the least. And I actually went from there to um, faith. Um, gotcha. There was no in between where I was a little more optimistic. It was a pretty quick turnaround in my life. But what was God to you before mm-hmm. that? I know that a lot of people grew up in religious households and God's just an idea that they put up with until they become older. And then they kind of live the rest of their lives a little indifferent or unsure or agnostic, mm-hmm. right? What were you, what were you before eighth grade? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I grew up Catholic. So God to me was a cosmic Santa Claus. You know, I never really mm-hmm. thought about God until I wondered, Oh, what would happen if I died? Or something like that. I remember there were well, actually, what led me to atheism is what I think what led you to hate God. Uh, there was a few times in my life around eighth grade is when a lot of bad stuff started happening. I remember I, I was just at my wits' end. I was desperate, and I just I started praying and just crying out for God, and nothing happened. Like things just got worse. So yeah. I had an option then. The option was either hate God or deny His existence, and I think I. Mm-hmm. I chose to deny his existence. I, I didn't choose that consciously, I think, but that's that's the crossroads. I but took. what you said there is really good for our listeners who may have grown up in a very stable, um, God-loving, God-honoring um, home. 
and have basically followed that their, throughout their whole life and have children that they're now teaching the same thing, which is, a, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, often people are left with one of those two options in their mind. It's a lie from Satan, but that's where they are, right? Mm-hmm. Either I have to hate the God that you're wanting me to, to um, serve or love in all these kids clubs and songs or whatever else, or I have to deny him. Right. And so, yeah, the, it, that was, that was a good thing. I, I wanted to highlight that when you had mentioned basically tension between different Hispanic groups, um, so not everybody's aware of that, you know, and I became aware of it really growing up in high school, but especially when I became a teacher and even just as recently as a year or two ago, um, there were some pretty, I, there were two guys that I was mentoring that were consistently being edgy and pretty intentionally trying to offend the girls in their classroom mm. um, by saying stupid teenager things. Right. And it's hard for me as a mentor because I'm now 26. I'm past that. I don't think that way anymore. Would I have done that? And when I was their age, probably right. Yeah. I, I would have thought it was funny. And now I look at it and I'm like, above anything else, you're just, it's, it's a waste of time. It's a waste mm-hmm. of your energy. Why are you doing that? Well, I, I, they said something, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, and I thought it was so trivial, but the girls, who I'm, I was also very close, so I was a teacher for for years, for several years before I became a mentor, um, were really, really offended to a point that they felt unsafe coming to school. Wow. And it was a tough thing for me because I, as a black man, have heard so many racist jokes my entire life. I have had so many things said to me, real and unreal real hatred or fake hatred, especially I've written articles about racism. So I've gotten lots of hate mail, right? Lots of terrible things said to me that my skin has toughened so much that it's like, I want these girls to be able to rise above this and not be defined by what they hear about them. But they explained to me privately that this is generational. You know, their grandparents don't like me. They don't, they don't even like the um, Mexicans that are in, in the school. And they hate, they, their parents hate their parents and they don't want to be that way. And so even just joking about it was traumatic for them because they wanted to live a life beyond the hatred that they saw in their, you know, theoretically their own people groups, you know, Mm -hmm. where the difference is primarily where you are, you know, in, in the world. And so that, that's something I think is, is significant because I didn't realize how much history and how much, um, across the board, typically, not everybody, but typically there's division there until I became a teacher and I had to mentor young people that were self-aware enough to realize that they were a part of that. The other time I realized that there was a racism wasn't just a um, white and black thing is we were during COVID and lockdowns and I went to go hand, I was handing out snacks to my students, obviously safely. I had gloves on, I, all, all, all the things. Cause at the time, nobody knew anything about COVID. We were just locked down mm-hmm. and we couldn't do school. And so I took hot Cheetos to them and gave them their homework. One of my students' grandmas entered the door and she lied about whether or not her daughter was there. Cause I had just got off the phone um, with her and she wouldn't look, let, take the snack. And I'm like, this is so bizarre because this family loves me. Like, I don't know. I've never met her, but, and she was just like, she shut the door in my face. And then they came running down like, oh, don't mind her. She just doesn't like black people. 
And I was like, oh, okay. Well, of course, I'd, does it matter to me? No, not really. But it opened my eyes that, and then they explained to me like, yeah, all of our family doesn't like black people. I'm like, man, like, where, where are they from? Yeah. Where, you know, and it, they are, um, they are Mexican. They're uh, Mexican. Yeah. And whatever experiences or things that they had heard been taught, you know, it was something that they were taught. It was given to them. And thankfully these young people that were in our school, um, were unwilling to take that on in their generation. We're unwilling to accept that, but that's why they were so serious about it because they didn't want to carry it forward. Maybe they were, were they oversensitive? Maybe, but they, they were very right to be reacting to something that was, that was a part of their lives. Yeah. So <clears throat> where did I leave off? You oh yeah. Choosing. Yeah. Good. Okay. So I chose, I chose to deny God. Um, I was an edgy kid, by the way. I still mm-hmm. am an edgy kid, but like I, so I was, I, I remember I took the Bible to school once and I started an argument with this Christian girl. And as the moment she started speaking, I told her to shut up. You can't speak to me. And then I pointed to the verse. <laughs> oh man. I did not permit a woman to teach, to teach or have authority over you. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, I feel like a jerk, but ah, man. I'm only laughing because it's just, it's so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, so that's how it was for up until sophomore year, I think. Um, yeah, up until sophomore year, and then and then I was hanging around the internet, and then I just I was presented very very simple renditions of arguments for the faith, very simple, like something like so it was it was the fine tuning argument argument, but it was super simple. It was it was like how could uh, we exist without uh, Jupiter pulling in all of those asteroids. Mm-hmm. It was never, it was never in depth or another one is how can something come from nothing? Very simple things. Every creation has to have a creator kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One liners, nothing, nothing in depth. And it's important that I say that because from that point on, even though I accepted that it was, true that it made more sense for something to exist rather than nothing. It made very little difference in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I stopped being an edgy atheist, but I didn't think that uh, God or whatever existed, the existence of this being didn't matter because even though it was rational to think that something existed, I still saw no no difference in my life or in in the world around me. And so it it didn't really matter. Then I went to college and that's when stuff got really dark for me. I, growing up, I I, I felt as though I had never really experienced anything good. I felt as though I was never truly happy, which is, I guess, true. But again, I was wallowing in self-pity. But anyhow, point is, I never felt happy. I, I leave high school and a lot of stuff starts happening in my life. Stuff at home uh, just gets really, really bad. Uh, stuff that I don't think any child would know how to handle. And I certainly didn't know how to handle it. And I was the only one of my siblings who knew the situation. And I couldn't burden my other siblings with with telling them with, with the truth. So I kept it to myself. I had no one really to talk to about it. Um, I told some of my friends, but they had, what were they going to say? They were 17. 
So I was dealing with that. And then I was dealing with um, someone very important to me, someone who had come into my life at that stage, who was the the first person who made me feel loved um, in that way. And then they, they disappeared for whatever reason. And then, so, so there's a bunch of stuff happening in my, in my life that just was causing emotional havoc. And then I take my first philosophy class and I come to the conclusion that there is no meaning to life, uh, regardless of whether there is a God or not. So nihilism. Yeah. Okay. So here's what happened. So I, I, I believed that even though something existed, I looked at the world and I saw that it was imperfect. And I said to myself, how can something imperfect come from something that is perfect? Therefore, uh, either what created us was imperfect and not something worthy of being worshipped, or it was, we were an accident, you know, some cosmic being sneezed and we came into existence. We weren't planned. And if we weren't planned, then we had no purpose. And if we had no purpose as part of our creation, then that means that any meaning we can derive from life has is inherently meaningless. So yes, um, I was nihilistic. I just didn't know that word at that time. So that's that's how I ended up majorly depressed at about 18, 19. Um, and that's when I started drinking uh, very heavily, actually. I, I was working in the restaurant industry at the time and everyone there um everyone there is a heavy drinker i don't know why i guess because the only thing to do after you get out from a evening shift is go to hang out at the bar so i started drinking pretty heavily well actually yeah so let's focus on that so that that's how i dealt with my pain that's how i learned to deal with the pain is is by drinking and when i say drinking i mean i mean drinking i don't mean oh i was pounding beers with my frat boys. I meant I was buying a bottle of Evan Williams, disgusting whiskey that I wouldn't drink today. Um, and like just chugging that stuff. Um, I was, I, mean, I don't know. It was nuts. I, I, I can't believe I used to drink that way. Um, but that's, that's that, that was better than the pain of existence. So the pain of a hangover was better than the pain of a sober life. As long as I got a night where I could numb my thoughts and numb the pain, the next morning I could handle it. The phrase was, if you're going to be stupid, you got to be tough. So, Mm. um, tune in next Monday for part two of Alex's story.